I've chosen a subject today that is probably very similar to some we've done in the past, and it's one that we'll probably do in the future again. I'm certainly not going to going to say no because it's an important subject. I've titled this one "Watching for Signs from God," and it's really perhaps broader than that. In fact, I think that's the difficulty that I had putting some of this together. It just doesn't seem to work for me right now, but we'll muddle through. And the reason part of that is not only my abilities, but it's also that there's so much stuff on this that that relates to it, it's difficult to kind of boil it down into something that's tangible that people can wrap their minds around. But this idea of people as Christians thinking that the right course of action is to go through life looking at all at everything that happens to them and looking in these things for a sign from God, I think is a very dangerous thing. I think it's one that's destructive over time because it leads you away from having faith in Jesus Christ. It leads you away from a stronger relationship into what I think is a much weaker relationship. There are people this morning in various places who have been thinking about, for example, going to a worship service. And they got up and looked outside and saw that it was cloudy or the forecast said it might thunderstorm. And this is a sign from God that they shouldn't go to worship service because of this. Or they went outside their door and and a certain animal came by or they saw a certain number of leaves had fallen on the sidewalk and that was a, a bad omen. And I'm, not, I'm talking about Christians now that do this. And therefore, they don't do something they were going to do because they've got a sign from God. Now, that's an extreme version of it. I'm going to show you some more common examples of this uh, in just a moment. But let's go to the text. We always like to start with a Bible text. And I think, uh, strange enough, this text illustrates what I'm going to talk about. And yet it's a common text that's alluded to when Christians refer to this very thing I'm talking about. And they use it in a positive way. Christians will use the words in this text in a positive way to actually teach something that the text is condemning or teaching you the opposite of. So think with me through this and see what you think. This is the story of Elijah after he had been uh, confronted the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. Boy, it's amazing to be up on Mount Carmel and see the view they had. on, And you can see the place where they got the rocks for the altar. It's all right there up on this mountain. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And you can see all over Israel, all the way to the sea. I have a picture of Judy. Maybe I showed you this. Standing, you know, with her hand up to show the size of a cloud that Elijah saw there on top of that. And, and he just finished that confrontation. God brought fire from heaven down on these prophets. On the altar. And then Elijah Elijah and his men slew, killed 450 prophets of Baal there. He thought he would want a great victory. Jezebel says, not so. I'm going to kill you. And if I don't kill you, I hope I die. And so Elijah takes off. And he leaves there. You can see the pathway he took down through that valley. All the way to the southern end of Israel. Hides under, uh, under a juniper tree exhausted God sends him into a cave he goes in the cave he's exhausted and there he tells God I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me I wish I would die and God sustained him for several days with food from ravens and so forth 
and finally came and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, well, I'm the only one left. They all are trying to kill me. I don't know what to do, more or less. He was depressed. We would say he needed to be Baker acted because he was, I'm serious. They would take him and and Baker act him because he is trying to, to think about how these stories would fit into where you're living. What would you do to a man that says, I want to die? What do you do with them? You Baker act them. But God doesn't Baker act Elijah. He's just discouraged and maybe depressed for very rational reasons. Not all depression is bad. We don't have to feel good all the time. I think that feeds into this sign-seeking thing, that we all got to feel good all the time about everything, or else something is really wrong. Sometimes you're perfectly justified. I am perfectly justified this morning to be anxious or concerned about my grandson. I'm not going to apologize for that. It concerns me. God will take care of it. It should all be fine. But I'm not going to apologize for being anxious about that, like there's something wrong with me. It's perfectly normal. So, but we're taught that anytime I feel any anxiety, I got to go find some, you know, aromatherapy, or I got to go find this, or God's working against me, or it's a sign from Satan. We're all taught to, to what's the technical term? Freak out over this stuff. That's the scientific term. But God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Go out there and stand outside this cave on this mountain for a moment. So Elijah goes out, and he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Here are things that God can do, and he was doing them. But the message to Elijah was, I'm not there. That's just an earthquake and wind, it's not my presence in that sense. And after the earthquake, a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. What's the point of this story? Well, the way it's used today by most Christian denominations and people is that we're supposed to be listening every day for this still small voice of God. That we just have to listen real carefully We have to get real quiet during our time on the beach or in the morning with our coffee. And if we just get real quiet and be still and know that I am God, another passage misused, then God will speak to us in a still, small voice. And whatever idea enters our mind at that time, that's God speaking to you. Now that's what's being taught all over this world and all over Christian denominations as to how you discern the will of God or what you ought to be doing for the day. You get quiet enough and God will speak to you in a still, small voice. The only problem with that is that's not what this passage is teaching at all. It's simply teaching that God, God is present in different circumstances. And so you have this, here's another common thing I wrote on this. The point of God speaking in the still small voice was to show Elijah that the work of God need always be accompanied by dramatic revelation or manifestations. Kept in its context in the point of the story. That's what's being said. Not, go out and listen, Elijah, I'm going to speak to you in a still small voice. That wasn't the point. The point was, I've been doing dramatic things through you, but that's not how I always work. That's not what you need to understand. 
I can work in a lot of different ways. And just because this doesn't work, just because the miracles didn't work, doesn't mean that I'm done dealing with Jezebel and Ahab. I'm not done dealing with them or anything else in Israel. I'm just going to do it differently. And so uh, divine silence does not necessarily mean divine inactivity. And that's the problem that we see. In fact, there are a lot of translations. Instead of a still small voice, basically it means we would say, as uh, they said in the modern song, the sounds of silence. What he heard was basically nothing. Just the normal sounds you hear when you stop talking for a moment. That's what he heard. Now here's, the, here's how I know that this story is not about sitting at your breakfast table with your organic tea and listening for some voice to come into your head. So you know, well, I'm not just making fun of people. This is almost the context where I read about this all the time on the different blogs. People use this verse. It's in that context, okay? Or on a nature trail or on the beach, you know? Here's what God told Elijah to do. He didn't tell him, go sit and listen for me now to tell you small secret things in private. He said, go and return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved in Israel my 7,000, all whose names have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he tells him not to sit back and wait for some still small voice. That isn't the point of the story at all. That's just a comparison between the earthquakes and fire coming down from heaven. But now go do these things. Go do the ordinary things that you need to do that I'm telling you to do. Listen to my word. And so Elijah got up from there and over a period of time went and did these things between him and Elisha. And God brought judgment upon the house of Ahab for these things. So it wasn't about waiting for a still small voice. It was about doing what God want you to do. Now, let me give you some examples. The, these are from, um, the, the, the next couple of slides are from a Christian counselor's casebook where he, uh, this is a female counselor, uh, dealing with different patients who come for counseling and with all these various problems. And so she recorded some of these. Uh, th- there's so many, million, dozens She says, here's one client. God speaks to me in dreams. I've heard this many times in dealing with people. I had a dream that my... I had such intense dreams a couple nights ago. I wondered if something was wrong with me. They were so intense. I changed. Doctor gave me a new medicine to take for my allergies. And man, does that thing provoke some really far out dreams. Anyway. Then the Lord said to him... I went backwards, didn't I? Sorry. God speaks to me in dreams. I had a dream that my friend from church was upset with me. While I love my church, I knew after having that dream, it's time for me to find a new church. Now this, instead of going to that person and saying, you know, I had a dream you were upset with me. Any truth to that? Uh, no. That's what the Bible would say to do, isn't it? What does the Bible say when you think someone has something against you? What does Jesus say to do in Matthew 5? And in, and in Matthew 18, go to that person 
and talk to them, find out the truth, and then deal with whatever the truth is, whether it's your fault or their fault. That's what the Bible's... Now, folks, that's God's will when you think someone has a problem with you. You don't find God's will about what to do when you think someone has a problem with you in a dream. But she did. Uh, Another one, God told me to ask you to plan the upcoming church picnic. I hope you will say yes. What are you going to say to that? If you believe that God... Now wait. If you believe that God speaks to people this way, and that you hear still small voices in your head that tell you what God says for you to do, what are you, it, what are you going to do when someone says that to you? Well, you're wrong. God didn't say that. Or I don't want to do it. Well, if, if both of you believe that God speaks in this still small voice, and that's how the will of God is known today, then you better get busy planning. See, the trouble with this is, we'll get to this in a moment, this doctrine is used as a sledgehammer by people who are just not quite bold enough to be direct about what they want. And it's used as a sledgehammer to get their way in a marriage, in work, in churches, in my friend. It's used as a sledgehammer because they're hoping that you'll believe that God told you them this and then you'll do what they say, as some people are. Not always. Now, here's another one. I've been praying for a husband for 10 years. Some of you women have been praying for your husband for 10 years, and he's right with you. But anyway, that's another thing. But, but apparently this woman does not have a husband. God spoke to my heart while I was at my favorite restaurant. Not, the, not fav, Only at the favorite restaurant does God speak in the still small voice. Not, don't laugh. That's part of the story, too. It's having the organic tea in the quiet time on the backyard while the hummingbirds are flying around. And God said that I would find my husband there. A week later, who who would have thought that you could find your mate at McDonald's? I presume that's her favorite restaurant. A week later, a man introduced himself, asked me on a date. See, she could have thought, this guy's a stalker, I better be careful. And we hit it off. I was never quite. Now, this sounds, I hate to be, I'm, I know I'm being sarcastic, but there are shows about this on the crime channel. Aren't there? Their whole sh- series based on people finding their mate this way, hitting it off, and ending up in a ditch somewhere. Whole shows. And you know, there are episodes where people have been told by God to go on this date with this guy. They say, maybe it was, Maybe that's God's will that you end up in a ditch. Well, why not? If everything that's ever happened is all planned by God and you have nothing to do with any of it, and that's what John Calvin taught, why isn't it God's will that some people end up in ditches? It's obviously God's will that they end up in a ditch because it happened. Now, we'll come to that in just a moment. Hold on to that thought. I just thought of that. That's a good point. Seriously, it's a good point. You think, well, it's not God's will that I end up in a ditch. Well, how do you know? Maybe, you know, you know, God told you to go meet this guy. And you know, the trouble with that is, that guy's hearing voices in his head, too. Okay, that guy's hearing voices in his head. That te- well, didn't the son of Sam say this when he was shooting those people in New York? God was telling him to do it. Happens all the time. 
Why is his still small voice not as good as yours? You see how much folly there is in this way of thinking. And that's why I urge you, and we can stop the sermon after this, but we're not going to. I urge you, listen and understand what God has written for you in the scriptures. That's where you find God's will. I was never, now listen to what she says though. Now remember, she's in a counselor's office. Okay, that's why we have a recording of this. I was never quite confident in his walk with the Lord, but I knew that marrying him was God's will because of what he had spoken to me. I didn't really think he was a good man, but I married him anyway because God had told me to do it. Does it surprise you that she's in a counselor's office? I'm not sure what the problem was, but it doesn't surprise me at all. Here's one. I've been discontent living in California. Well, who isn't today? But anyway, wake up. While I had a great church, home, and a job there, I just felt as if there was something more for me. Every time I prayed about going on a new adventure, I felt an overwhelming peace from God about it. That's another way they express this. I felt a peace from God for, about what I, this is what I should do. One day while walking on the beach, not walking through Walmart, one day while walking on the beach, I saw a cloud shaped like the state of Texas. I just knew that this was a sign from God. My friends and family tried to talk me out of moving but I knew God had spoken to me, and I moved the next month. And now she's in counseling. But don't say that part. I'm glad she moved from California to Texas to some, in some ways. But this is not why you should do it. To interpret the clouds in a certain way and then decide how to make major decisions of your life because you interpret the formation of clouds and then worse. Now, if you want to do that, that's probably, that's probably just good a way to do some things you're going to have to do as any other way. With some decisions in life, you might as well roll some dice, go with that, and just be done with it. Maybe that's how you decide to do it. And that's fine. Because you know what I believe about this story? I believe that whether she stayed in California or stayed in Texas, she could have done God's will. That's what I believe about it. I believe she could have served God in California. She could serve God in Texas. And God would be just as happy with either case. Her life might be just as hard in California or harder in Texas. We don't know. That's the trouble with the decisions we make. Is we're, but we're looking for something more than that. That's the problem. We're looking for something more than I've weighed it. I've tried to use my best judgment. I've read the Bible. I've tried to make decisions based on what I think is good or bad. But let me give you another example of this. Here are Lot, and I started in my sermon, so we'll try to keep it short. But uh, here are Lot and Abram or Abraham, and they're, they they got to separate in the Bible. they got to separate because their flocks are too big. Their, their men are fighting with each other. So Abraham says, look, here is the great valley before us, all the green grass, and here is where we are now, you choose which way you want to go. Whatever way you go, I'll go the other way. You can have the valley, you can have the hills here. You choose. And so Lot said, I'll take the valley. So he went off into the valley down towards Sodom, it says. Was that a good or bad choice? Neither one. Neither one. Even though he had trouble in Sodom, 
but the Bible still calls him righteous. Now, here's the thing to think about, though. Oh, well, Abraham, he didn't choose to go towards Sodom. He chose to stay in the mountains, did he? Or did Lot choose for him? Who chose where Abraham would go? Not Abraham. Lot did. Now, the two of them might have acted differently once they got down there towards Sodom in the valley because the Bible pictures him moving finally into the city. But I can gather from that, not what you usually gather. What I gather is that that it would have been fine with God, either choice that was made in that case by either man. They could go to the valley or they could go down towards Sodom. That's not what made it God's will or not God's will. And they could do God's will either in the valley or in the mountains there in that case because it was just a choice that they made. Lot made the choice. I don't think he's condemned for that choice even though the consequences turned out poorly for Sarah and other people around him. And they really turned out hard for him too, obviously. But that wasn't the reason they turned out poorly, that he made a choice there in the valley. Now, we've got to move on from that. Here's a letter written to John Piper. John Piper, if you don't know, is a pretty prominent evangelical preacher. I believe he called himself evangelical, but pretty popular around the world. And and I respect a lot of what John Piper has written and said and other things I do not agree with, and so therefore he's wrong, obviously. But he, he has a radio show, and, and, and this is a letter written to him about this. I love the, I love the teaching of providence. Providence is that... Is, what happens in the world and how good things happen or poor things happen uh, in, in life that we think of. And it's us trying to make sure things turn out to be convenient for us or good for us in the long run. And so we ask God to bless people. And by that I mean I hope that their life ends up that they serve you. That's what I mean by that and are blessed by serving you. I don't mean I hope life goes well and get everything they want because that's not a blessing. For most people. But you may, you, you may mean something different when you say God bless you. But he says, uh, I, I eagerly look forward to getting a copy of your, of your new book. As a pastor, I battle a growing new age practice among some Christians in the use of omens, this fellow calls them. I think that's the best way to label uh, in Ask Pastor John, APJ 1580, you said, as I look at the 10,000 tiny bubbles popping at the top of the foam of my diet, Dr. Pepper, I believe that every one of those bubbles is popping in accord with, with, is popping in accord perfectly with God's bubble popping plan. First of all, do you think God really approves of diet, Dr. Pepper? That's the big question. Now, seriously. But he's looking at the bubbles that pop up. So me and Judy, uh, Judy and I, no, yeah, Judy and I often go to Culver's, and I like Culver's for various reasons, ice cream, hamburgers, fries, and they also have uh, diet root beer there, so I love that. And so uh, we go there and get the diet root beer, and you do it, and you get about half the glass, and the foam comes up all the way to the top. I finally showed Judy the, the real trick there. Stick your finger in there and swirl it around and get rid of all the bubbles. Uh, this is especially enjoyable to do during the time of a global worldwide pandemic. <laughs> I really enjoy doing it then. Stick your hand, finger in there and swirl it around and get rid of the bubbles. So which is God's perfectly bubble-popping plan? To stick it in, let the bubbles come up, and let them naturally, quote, unquote, naturally go down, or you can put some more in, 
or put your finger in there and swirl it around. Which is God's perfect bubble-popping plan? That's what I want to know. Seriously. Now, if you mean that God has developed physical laws from before the creation of the world that govern when and how bubbles are made and popped and how long they last, yes, I believe in that. I believe that God designed the universe physically to be a certain way, that a certain temperature, certain things produce these bubbles, and certain things don't, and they last this long, and they get this big. And You know, we got a whole science. Gary probably took classes on this in college, didn't you? Fluid dynamics and surface tension and all that stuff. God designed all of that. It's in his will. It's in his providence. But there is not a perfect bubble-popping plan if you're in, for your specific glass of Diet Dr. Pepper that, that operates, and it can't happen any other way that day. Oh, unless God forced you to stick your finger in and swirl it. It probably works with Diet Dr. Pepper, too, to swirl it around. But this guy is saying, John, you said that, that God has a perfect bubble-popping plan for every glass of Diet Dr. Pepper, and I agree with that. Okay, hold on to that thought. However, it, it concerns me that some will use this to justify their belief that what they, when they see a certain number over and over in one day, that this is a prophetic message from God. Or they will claim to see answers in cloud formations, or what birds fly over, or whether you walk under a ladder. or a bl- Oh, no, wait, I'm talking about superstition. Oh, wait, what's the difference? What's the difference between you seeing cloud formations or certain numbers of, of ducks walking along than in what people used to believe about cat, cats and ladders. and oh, I thought of the perfect super, superstition last night. I was trying to go to sleep, and I'm thinking I thought about the perfect superstition that people have. And I can't think what it is now. I'll think of it in a minute. It was, I thought to myself, I'm never going to remember this tomorrow. Didn't write it down. And guess what? I know this all sounds silly. But these things are very real for some Christians who are always on the lookout for a sign from God. Increasing people's trust in God's all-pervasive providence in all things is likely to amplify this tendency. And, and he, John Piper answers this, and it's a good article. I recommend it to you. In fact, I'm going to quote some of it in just a moment. But I think there's a valid criticism here that when we begin to say that God plans everything out and or that I have to discern his signs every day for my life before I can really know how to live. We end up walking in some very uh, iffy territory. So here's another woman, Bree Gowan. She writes a blog, and she's always got this kind of stuff on. I, can't even, I couldn't even look it all up. There's so much I just dismiss it from now on. Here's one. Somewhere in the middle of trying to discern God's will, you get all distracted by the logistics See, she spends her day, her morning, looking for God's will in cups of tea, with cups of tea and, and birds flying and things like that. As a Christian writer, she spends her days doing that. Am I hearing God's voice correctly, she asks. Ugh, it's like the biggest question Christians ask themselves. Well, that's a problem right there. If that's the biggest question you're asking yourself, how to discern God's will in the birds and trees and what I'm supposed to do, what I'm supposed to wear today, uh, you're, you're really probably going the wrong general direction. I want to take this job, but is that what God wants for my life? Am I hearing him right? I want to marry this guy, but is he the one that God has for me? Am I hearing God right? And so this is her this is her, her approach to this problem. Am I hearing God right? Once again, 
the choice of who you marry can turn out a lot of different ways. And it's not like God has one chosen person for you. I've seen people that look as far as anyone could possibly tell from the outside, and even as a preacher, perfectly match one another. They both love the Lord. They both believed in what God said, and they were divorced in five years, ten years. I've had people, as I told before, sitting in council with me who are now trying to get me to help them, help them. Well, no, they were trying to get me to say, it's okay if you divorce this guy. And the reason they had a problem is because God had told them to marry him in the first place. God told me to marry him, they said, and certain visions and things that happened. And now they're trying to get me to figure out a way to get him out of that. I said, I'm not going to help you get out. If God told you, then you live with it. It's more or less what I told him initially. Because who am I to contradict a great vision from God that you had? I was trying to attack the idea of the vision or the sign. God has more than... Look, and I believe this. I believe this when I, before I married Judy because I've told young women this. I can marry a lot of different girls and we could live a long, happy life together if we both believed what God said in the Bible about how to treat each other and how to live and molded our lives by that, there are lots of different girls that I can marry and be very happy with, and you could too if you wanted to. But we got this Disney princess idea that there's a one and only Prince Charming, and he's looking for you with a glass slipper, and that's the one you've got to put your, you got to put your foot into before you can be happy and do God's will. It's destructive. Destructive and foolish. Leads Christians into sin. Leads other people into destructive behaviors. But all are looking. But most of these people will come along and have a sign, a sign from God to marry this person. My sign was: I'm sitting in the student center with Judy. I'm studying for exams. She's sitting there next to me reading. We do this a lot, and she and we. I'd taken a, a glass of hot. Bought a cup of hot water for both of us for five cents each because that's what I could afford. I had some used tea bags. I had a used tea bag I unrolled from my pocket, made her a little tea, made me a little tea, a little weak, but, you know, it's only like the third or fourth time I've used this tea bag over and over again. <laughs> I'm not kidding, am I? I'm serious. And we were sitting there drinking that tea, and I looked over at her. She looked at me, smiled, went back to reading. I smiled, and I thought to myself, you know what, Mike? You can live with this girl. Amen. This is one that you can live with because she's perfectly happy sitting next to you. You're perfectly happy sitting next to her. You don't have to be funny. You don't even have to be smart. You just have to be there, and she's happy. Sign from God. Bell started ringing, right? No. I didn't know it at the time when I was 20 or whatever old I was. This was the accumulation of God's will in my life what I had been instructed by my parents or grandparents, what I'd read and heard from the Bible over a long period of time, and learning and looking around me as to what makes a good marriage from people that I'd seen that were good and had failed or not, and that led me down that path to choosing a particular girl. Was I correct? Well, at the time, it's turned out that way. Why has it turned out that way, though? Has it turned out that way because I had a sign from God about this? Or has it turned out that way because over that time and we, over the next many years, 47 years, we've spent every day figuring out how to get along with one another and do the right thing? What, which, what made it work? The sign? 
I tell people when I do the wedding ceremony, it's not about whether, I don't ask you whether you love this person. I ask you, will you love this person? That's the question. Will you love them? That's God's will. Love them. That's an active thing every day. Not don't seek science to figure it out. Well, we've got to move on. Here's another one. Here's a more dangerous one almost. I know our time is slipping away. I haven't even got half of this. This is from a very, very popular preacher. I don't know if he considers himself evangelical or not. He is preaching for a very big church in Washington, D.C. with several campuses. He has written seven or eight books. And I like some of his stuff that he writes, little short things. I, I like, but a lot of it is just, it's not Bible. It's psychology with a Bible dressing. There's some value in that. But it's not what the Bible says. He's not teaching me a text. Here's what he says. He's sitting somewhere, probably Starbucks or something, as window shoppers stroll up and down the promenade. I've never been to a place with a promenade, so I'm not sure what that means. But anyway, I I scribbled down a personal definition of success on a napkin. That that napkin may have well have been a stone tablet inscribed by the finger of God on Mount Sinai. God redefined success for me and spelled it out on that napkin. If you hear or read of a preacher saying something like that, all kind of alarm bells and whistles ought to be going off in your head. That this guy sits in a cafe and God speaks to him on a napkin and it's like God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is good writing to him. People applaud this. This is receiving a sign from God is what it is. It's just the way preachers receive the sign from God. They think that when they get a good idea... It is as if God must have written it from Mount Sinai on a piece of stone. Dangerous. Unscriptural. Beware. Am I too strong? And this is just a little part of the art. This isn't even the main thing he's saying. This is something that jumped out at me and knocked me over. It was like a sign from God that I should put this in this sermon. John Piper says, first, here's a wrong answer to the problem of providence. An unbiblical answer, he says. We can live by trying to read the providence of God as if the hundreds of events that befall us each day had messages in them that we're supposed to decipher so that as providence befalls us, it becomes a series of codes showing us how to think and how to feel and which way to go. We can do that, and there's nothing biblical in that idea at all. Because you know the problem with this whole thing? Just how many... Signs did you miss today already? You, you can only respond to the ones that you think you perceive. But how, who's to say the dozens of others? How many things have happened to you since you opened your eyes this morning? If you start enumerating all the different little things from when you walked in the bathroom, what toothpaste, where the toothpaste was in the drawer, and, and what, what it was next to. You mean you don't think that your toothpaste being next to something else in the drawer could be a sign? You just don't know enough then. Or whether the mirror was too foggy. I mean, how many things have happened to you today and you didn't think most of that was a sign? You just picked out one thing. And that thing then becomes the sign. Who's doing the choosing of the signs? Now, when God sent a sign to people in the Bible, they knew the sign. They knew what it was. They didn't like it oftentimes, but they knew it. 
So the biblical answer is we can, uh, we can find God's providence in everyday life by orienting our entire life toward understanding the revealed will of God in his word, not a secret hidden will in the coding of the clouds and the coincidences. And by availing ourselves of all the biblically appointed means of grace like corporate worship and preaching and brotherly correction, being transformed in the spirit of our minds, so as to discern moment by moment the way of truth and love. I knew a young man who was struggling with his faith. He, he didn't like the idea that everything is in the Bible and come from a Christian home. And so he said, one day I was up on this building on the, on the third floor, second floor, maybe third floor, I don't remember. It was, there was, being, it was under construction up there. And um, I saw a wheelbarrow down there and uh, had a styrofoam cup in it. And I had this tennis ball. And I said, you know, God, I love you. But if you're really there, really real, let this tennis ball go in that cup. So he dropped it off the building. It bounced once and went right in the cup. And then he said, you know, I was standing there praying. And I, I said, God, if you're really there, let those clouds part. And they did, he said. So I believe. And he was taking those as signs. Not faithful to the Lord today as far as I know. Because that's how weak that becomes. That's how the weakness involved in that way of testing God and signs will eventually lead you away from God. Not toward him. Now. John Piper says we lack the wisdom and knowledge to interpret providence. That's true. We don't know what it means sometimes. Events are too complicated. We should not ground our faith in providential circumstances because I just showed you they will off. What, what if the what if the what if he didn't get it in the cup? That's what I asked him. I said, most of the, everybody when they throw it off the building, it's not going to go in the cup. It's like me trying to take a half court shot. I've taken half court shots before. Uh, I think I made one. I don't know. I'm not that patient to stand there long enough to figure it out. I can make one, though. But what about all the times I don't? What if, the, what if that doesn't go in the cup? Does that mean he should not? Does that mean God isn't real and that he shouldn't believe him and shouldn't follow him? How do you know that God just intentionally makes it not hit the cup? See, that's the problem with these things. You get up to go somewhere, and whether you want to go to, uh, well, to take a job or not. Now, you may find this a very odd illustration, but I had to wait to, to come here to preach from June until the following January. I had to move in June, live somewhere else, find another way to make a living for six months before this church was ready for me to preach for them 26 years ago, almost 27. Was that a sign from God that I shouldn't move here? Or was God testing my desire to do this and stick out the tough circumstances. Which one was it? I don't know. I don't know which one it was. <clears throat> because this adventure could have failed in the first year anyway. It didn't fail. Well, I say it didn't fail. Gary and Karen and other few may disagree. But I say it didn't fail. But that wasn't because God had given a sign or not a sign. Or doomed it from the beginning. It mattered what you do afterwards. So was God? is God just trying to stymie your intentions when things don't go your way? Or is it always just a sign that when things go your way, that's what God wants you to do? 
I think that pathway leads you from very dangerous things. Because doing wrong is almost always easier than doing what's right. That's the problem with it. We should, we should reject a desire for special knowledge, my own personal special knowledge being better than yours, and, and, and so forth. Now then, I think astrology is a, is a link to this and divination because they're the same thing. They're listening to a still small voice apart from the revelation of God. God condemned this roundly. That's why Jesus says, rather than looking for signs... Don't worry about your life, what you eat or drink. What do we want? Why are we seeking these signs? We're seeking the signs so we can have things better for ourselves. We can make a better job, uh, better, more money on this job or not. We need to buy this house opposed to that house. I know buying houses is difficult. But, and sometimes you have to realize I made a mistake and buy another house. And that's odd. But that's not the point of it. The point is doing right in the middle of those circumstances. And so he says, look at the birds of the air. They can't know where their food's coming from, and yet they do, their, do God's will in their own created way. The life is more than the food, and the body is more than clothing. Which of you, by worrying, can add one stature, uh, one cubit to his stature? Do not worry about the clothing. And I'm paraphrasing here in Matthew 6. And he goes on to say, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God. That's the will of God. That is the teaching of the scriptures and his righteousness that we find revealed, not in signs and wonders and things that happen. And all these things be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Those of you looking for signs, I think that's for a lot of you, that's the thing you need to get in your heart. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You want to know which decision you should make about what job or what house or what to wear. He's saying these things are not that important for you to worry about. Paul found that he was, had a sign from God. The sign was the thorn in the flesh. And he asked God to take away this pain or, what, or circumstance of some kind, whether it was physical or spiritual. Three times he asked the Lord to take it away in a very specific way. It was a messenger from Satan and from him. And God said no each time. I'm looking for a sign from God, he says. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase Paul if he were in the same situation. And I prayed to God that this would happen. A certain thing would happen and it didn't happen. What does that mean? I should give up on God or this or that? He said to me, now here Paul did get a message. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities and weaknesses. The things that go wrong. All the things that I fail at. All the things that don't go my way. I will boast in those. That the power of Christ Boy, I've had to try to remind myself so many times. My grace is sufficient for you, God tells me. Tells me Paul that here. But what is his, what's the word grace? Draw a line in your Bible from the word grace back to the original meaning. You know what it is? Draw a line from the word thorn to the word grace in your Bible. Because the thorn is what Paul is calling, God's calling the grace I've given you. So in this case, things not going your way, you not getting what you want, is exactly what God intended for you. That's his will, as it were. 
not the way it's preached in churches today, is it? So here's the conclusion. Sorry we're gone so long, but I got to finish. I can't do two parts on this. It's not the will of God that I do this in two parts. I had a voice that said, "Don't do it." Well, you laugh. I did have a voice in my head a moment ago that said, "Don't break this into two parts." I did have that voice. Literally, where did it come from is the issue. Whose voice was? Well, it sounded like my voice. Might have been God's, but it sounded like mine. Astrology and divination is popular for the same reason as this sign seeking. I know I'm being harsh, but I want you. It's, I'm not saying that if you do this, you're an astrologer and all that. I'm saying it's it's the same human motivation and fear behind it. Secondly, often God takes us down a path of suffering, and that suffering may be from our own foolishness or sin or, or not. Sometimes we suffer when we're doing well. Suffering and things going badly isn't a sign that you're doing wrong. Not always. You know what Jesus says? Last thing he said before he went back to heaven to the apostles. I will be with you always. I've told you before. We had difficulties in our life. Judy and I do. Just like the rest of you do. No different than anybody else. We have difficulties. Things we don't know what to do. Where things are, how things are going to happen. How it's all going to turn out. And I've only been able to tell her in the last few years. I, hope she, I think she believes me. Honey, I do not know what's going to happen. But I can tell you one thing that I do know. I'm going to be right next to you while it's happening. I'm not going anywhere. I don't want you to go anywhere. Whatever happens, we'll be together when we, when we do this. Now that, I think that should be good enough for her. Probably, it may, I think it is. But that wouldn't be good enough for a lot of women, would it? Wouldn't be good enough at all. And so God says to Christians, to the apostles, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Is that good enough for some of them? No. no. He's got to prove it by things going their way in life and giving them signs. The Lord is with us. We can do this. We can do what he wants us to do, whatever the circumstance. And then my grace, here's the key. My grace is sufficient for you. Because a lot of this involves the generation or two of people that everything is special about them. They're all special children. They all got to get that special sign. When I was teaching school, I would tell a kid, you know, you're my favorite student, Dwight. Oh, he gets so excited. A few minutes later, I'd tell Jody, you know, Jody, you're my favorite student. And it's weird. I'm sure if I said to my brothers, you know, mom told me I was her favorite, my grandmother, my mom told me I was her favorite grandchild. My brother said, well, she told me the same thing. <laughs> we all want to be that special grandchild, don't we? Well, we are. And so Paul says, God tells Paul, Paul, look what all I've done for you. Look what you've done for me. My grace is sufficient for you. You don't have to have all the things that you want. You don't have to get the signs. Watch what I'm doing for you. So there it is. I appreciate very much your attention this morning, and even though I made a promise to myself I wouldn't do this and go long. But I do, did want to finish this, so I appreciate your attention. And we're going to close our service now by singing number 588. Sinners Jesus will receive. We invite you to this morning, if you haven't done so already, to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. Come and serve Him.
Accept his grace, his pardon, his care for you. If this morning you've wandered away from the Lord and become weak or sinned against the Lord, come, let us pray with you. God will forgive if you'll repent. Thank you so much for listening, and we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing.